Good morning. Great to see you here this morning. I'm Pastor Bruce. Welcome everybody online as well. And as others come in, make sure they feel right at home. We're here to worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose presence with us will inspire our hearts and minds. And I know that we'll feel renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in worship. I, I know I am every Sunday. I am blessed. And I know that and pray that you will be too. I've been praying for you. Um, this morning, we just have uh, no, no special announcements. It's just a special time that uh, some call Lent, and it just means a preparation for Easter. Some of you may have thought about, well, let's see, I can give up chocolate or TV or movies or whatever, but I suggest that we give up sin. How about you? That, that, would, be, that would be the better answer for Lent, right? So I'm sure there's chocolate in heaven and all that, so it'll be all right. So let's begin then with a word of prayer. Let's thank God for who we are in Christ Jesus and what the Spirit is doing. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so very much for your love for us, how you touch our hearts and our minds. You, you got us out of bed this morning. You got us dressed. You brought us here, Lord, for a very great reason. It's you. We're here for you. We love you. We're here to be inspired by you. We're here to be molded and shaped and encouraged by you. We're here to enjoy the community that you've created, the church, that we are a brotherhood and sisterhood united as a family in Christ Jesus. And so, God, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit's shaping and moving us, touching our hearts, pouring your love into us that we can overflow with love to one another and to the world around us. We pray, God, that more and more people will come to receive and believe the good news of Jesus, that he did, in fact, die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, buried, raised from the grave, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. And Lord, that assures us of our forgiveness, that every day we're right with you by your own declaration and your work for us. And we thank you, God, that eternal life is there forever and ever with you and all the saints in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Let's worship the Lord. Thank you. 
It's good to be here this morning. Good to play my dad's favorite hymn. That was his hymn right there. <laughs> All right. commands all the hosts of heaven who else can make every king bow down who else could whisper and darkness trembles
so good to be in your house this morning. It just reminds us, Father, that you are all-powerful. You are undefeated. You are holy. Father, you are strong, and you are our Father. And, Lord, we are so grateful to be in your house this morning. And we thank you, Father, that we belong to you. And, Father, we want to live for you in, out of love for you, Lord. And we just pray that our hunger and our thirst for you and your goodness would just increase more and more. And we just want to surrender this time to you. And we want to surrender all that's in our hearts and on our minds. Lay that at your feet, Lord, so we can fully worship you in, in spirit and truth. Thank you, Father.
Heavenly Father, Lord, it's a wonder that we have your word, that you have orchestrated everything from Genesis through Revelation for us to read and ponder and appreciate. Lord, it's there so that we don't get to know you just in a general way, but Lord, you've revealed yourself so intimately to us that we could see examples of your love and your justice, your mercy and your grace, your compassion. And Father, especially when Christ was born and lived and taught and healed and loved and suffered for our sakes, that our sins could be laid upon him willingly, that when he died on the cross, Lord God, your justice was satisfied. And in that same moment, your mercy applied that we did not then get what we deserved. That through faith in Jesus Christ, by your grace, you set us free. Free to be loved and free to love. Free to focus on Christ, to keep our eyes on Jesus. And we thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit is alive and active right here, right now. That we've just sung a song of surrender. And that, Lord, that just means that we give you our whole being. That we could really love you fully and love each other fully. Thank you, Father, for your great work, for your steadfast love, for your missional purposes, that we're here for a reason, that you give us meaning and purpose and hope and community. It's a gift that you have provided for us now and forever. Thank you so much for who you are and what you do and what you will do and who we are in Christ. So much to be thankful for. God bless those family members and friends we can think of this morning who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet know the saving grace. Lord, we pray that this morning your Holy Spirit will minister deeply and richly in their hearts and minds, that they could come to know and love you as we do today through faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Uh, the kids are now free to head down the hallway for Sunday school. Uh, middle and high schoolers, Gabe's right there, and we've got a minute for mission here from Love, Inc., right? Yeah. Good morning. I'm Lori Hutchinson, in case you don't know me, and I'm a partner with Love in the Name of Christ here at Oregon City. And first, I'd love to thank my church for all the donations you guys have given us throughout the years. Last year, we served 250 families. So that was wonderful. We are open uh, to serve families every other Thursday now, and we probably have five or six families coming in for care pantry. We have several families coming in for our children's clothing ministry and our shoe ministry. We're helping a lot of church or schools, I'm sorry, in Oregon City. So I've got a little video that we're going to present today so you can learn a little bit more about Love, Inc. So our mission is to mobilize local churches and transform lives and community in the name of Christ and our vision to seek Christian churches united in purpose and fully engage in activity 
living out their faith by lovingly serving people in the need of their communities. Many organizations have staff. Few organizations bring caring and loving and train Christians alongside individuals who most basic need is someone to love them and ultimately share Christ with them. The role of love in the name of Christ is not to replace the church, but to help churches distribute their skills, gifts, resources, and to love communities need in the name of Christ. We believe the local churches is God's answer to community brokenness and a part of his plan of redemption and restoration. Therefore, we mobilize local churches to offer redemption, compassion, a holistic approach to caring for people in all areas of life, spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, material, and physical. Local churches draw closer to Christ's heart when they care for people in need by working together, reflecting God's image, affirming potential. As a result, God transforms life inside and out the church. Yeah, I don't really need to read all this to you, so you guys can read it. <laughs> Next slide. So get involved. We have a prayer team. We have blue bags for the bottle uh, return, and each of those five or ten cents now goes to Love, Inc., uh, we write to students of Clackamas. We always need volunteers in our, we have a call center, we have data entry, we have a lot of positions that we need help for. And you guys donate financial materials needed, we appreciate that. And our, our website up there, if you have a furniture donation, we have a furniture ministry in Camby, which served over 100 families last year. You can go on our website, and there you can find out how to donate furniture. Um, that's how we get all our furniture that families, like moms coming out of a situation where they have no furniture, they are able to go down there and pick up furniture for their home, beds for their kids, sheets, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really wonderful opportunity down there. So, okay. Do we have a, is that all we have, Chris, for that? Okay. Okay. We are Love Inc. That's not incorporated, but rather in the name of Christ. We are a non-denominational ministry on a mission to mobilize local churches to transform lives and communities in the name of Christ. Simply put, we help churches help people. Why? Because we believe there's nothing more powerful than churches working together as the body of Christ. As the body of Christ, every Christian church, regardless of denomination, is called to serve their neighbors and share their resources. They are called to walk with people who are struggling within their walls and out in their community. So where do we come in? Love, Inc. connects the calling of local churches to the struggles of the community. Here's how Love, Inc. works. 
A community member with a need calls a local church. This could be a simple request, like diapers for their child or food for their family, or something bigger, like a bed for their daughter, a ride to a medical appointment, or some other type of support. And they ask, can you help me? The church can say, yes, we partner with other churches so that we can. Call Love, Inc. to learn more. So they call and we pick up. We listen to them. We get to know them, their strengths and struggles, their hopes and dreams. We want to know about more than their current crisis because we're not just about meeting needs. We're about meeting people where they're at and caring for them holistically. Then, through Love, Inc.'s network of churches and community relationships, we work to help. Diapers are provided by one church, groceries by another. Rides are arranged with caring church volunteers, while classes and mentoring are provided by others. And it's all coordinated by Love, Inc. So at every step, our neighbors are met with dignity and respect while our partner churches are free to focus on serving according to their strengths, knowing that each individual will be fully cared for by the body of Christ within their community. The result? Transformed lives, transformed churches, and transformed communities. Will you join us in this work? Visit loveinc.org to find out more or contact your local Love, Inc. to get connected in your community. Thank you so much for your time. I've, uh, I'll just add to what she said. Uh, the, the head of the uh, Love, Inc. here in Oregon City used to be the missions pastor up in a big church in Vancouver, and he felt very called by God to lead in this ministry. And you're, if you're wondering how interactive they are with the people, they've, they've set aside the, just the handout and see you later and we try and help, but they're really more engaged and they're very interested in the interactive, more long-term uh, impact that they can have in people's lives. And so I'm really grateful for what Love, Inc. is doing. And it's not just here in Oregon City, but there's Love, Inc.'s all around. First time I heard of it, uh, we were at a church in Seattle, and there was a Love, Inc. set up up there, too. And so it does a lot of good. And I'm thankful for the leadership. I'm thankful for what they're doing. I'm also thankful for our tech team back there that pulled that video off which is a good reminder, we could always use more volunteers. And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm glad that wasn't me, don't worry about it. I'm in the same boat as you. But we can teach and mentor and train. So if you're interested in that ministry as well, we'd hope you would think about it. Thank you so much. There's so much good going on out there, and we sometimes lose track of it. Really grateful for our partners in Christ. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump to Romans chapter 14. Heavenly Father, we come to your word, and we thank you, God, that the words that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Lord God, Paul knew would be read by many, including ourselves this morning. We pray, God, that your word will come alive in our hearts and our minds, that our spirit truly would be walking in step with yours, that the love we have for each other would grow and be welcoming and accepting of things, Lord, that Maybe our conscience or our traditions might lead us to value, but Lord God, we're biblical people. We've got the manual of operations called the Word of God, and we thank you, Lord, that those words are operative in our lives, together in Christ, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This morning, we're going to uh, read through a little bit of a longer stretch than I've been looking at. We're going to look at the first 12 verses in chapter 14. Uh, it could be broken down even more. Some do. Um, I chose not to. Uh, this is part of a longer section. If you wanted to read everything that Paul has to say about what we're going to look at, you'll have to read through chapter 15, verse 13. So it's quite a long stretch, about a chapter and a half, with a singular topic per se, but he's addressing different people in the church that over time can cause divisions amongst ourselves unintentionally, uh, but maybe even with a good heart can still create disunity. And what we want to look at is to see what Paul says about what he calls disputable matters or what I would say non-essential matters that can creep up in anybody's life, whether it's your family or your church or in your community. Hear now the word of the Lord. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead, and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, this is part of, our, of the beginning of a very long section, which really makes me think that there was tremendous issues in the Roman congregation at the time that Paul dwells on for a lengthy bit. Now, writing things and taking time to transport them and all of that was not cheap, and so for Paul to take the time to pencil out or to write out on vellum or whatever used, the uh, writings that we have tells us there's something very important going on. The church is struggling with divisions. Not only are there divisions amongst Christian Jews and Gentile Christians because of the hierarchy of who's more important and who got there first, and the Jews were exiled for a while and came back, and the Gentiles had gotten along just fine without them, and so they were like, where's our place together in all of this? But even more than just those divisions of race, and Old Testament, New Testament time frames in Christ, 
there were issues over things that Paul said didn't matter. There are certain things that people get all hung up on, and I call them hang-ups and hiccups, that stop the body from truly embracing each other in love and can cause all kinds of divisions. In the church, apparently, it was struggling with an unloving atmosphere and judgmental attitudes about those things that the Bible did not clearly say were sin. They didn't matter. So the problems became that certain traditions or certain matters of conscience were rising to the level of righteousness and rightness with God, and anything that didn't match your conscience or match your traditions were considered to be sinful or subpar and inferior to what we were thinking or you were thinking. Handled it the wrong way, the church was struggling with unity in Christ Jesus. There were divisions among them, and that can happen anytime, anywhere. The solution is, instead of judging and condemning one another on non-essential, disputable matters, what does Paul say? Well, remember that we're ultimately accountable to God for those very things and to accept one another. Now, you may have noticed that he talks about weak Christians. That doesn't mean muscles. It doesn't mean that their faith is inferior, like they're somehow weak in their salvation. That is not what he's saying. We'll look deeper into that. What he's saying is their conscience or their traditions are stopping them from exercising their freedoms in Christ. They can't, they can't do things that strong Christians can do. Strong is not better, and weak is not better. They're just different. And Paul says, don't get wiped out about strong and weak arguments over things that don't matter. Matter to God. They may matter to you, but they don't matter to God, except on an individual basis, your walk with God. So who would be the weak Christians? Well, Jews and Gentiles whose conscience prevented them from exercising all the freedoms that the Bible allows in Christ. Who are the strong? Those are the opposite. Those whose conscience and traditions didn't bother them at all. They were free to do the things that the Bible allowed and God affirmed. So what are the disputable matters? Any issue or principle that the Bible does not clearly say is a sin. In other words, don't make a bunch of rules when there aren't any. That's one of the basic messages you get in 1 Corinthians. Very similar passage there if you want to look it up. It's there for you to see. So the first point that comes up is Paul would say this, and I'm putting my own words to this. Disputable differences dare not divide us. Disputable differences dare not divide us. They just must not. Absolutely must not. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Accept him whose faith is weak. Accept him whose faith is weak. Without passing judgment, on disputable matters. Now, if it's indisputable, if it's clearly stated in Scripture, then there is no debate. But when it's foggy or gray or unstated and the principles don't help us arrive at the answer, then we need to let God be the leader and the guide and the judge of that determination that each one of us can make. And I'll give you some examples in a little bit. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who doesn't, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. Why? Well, for God has accepted him. 
For God, it's a non-essential. Big deal, you might hear from heaven. Big deal. Get over it. Each one of us is accountable to God for matters of conscience when the Bible doesn't give us clarity on certain things. And that's something to keep in mind. So what does it mean to accept? The word accept doesn't mean, okay, you're, that's fine. I, I, I get it. I accept it. I'm willing to say fine. But that's not what Paul means. It includes that, but it's more than that. The word accept is also used for food that you eat, consume, and becomes part of you. If I eat a donut, I've accepted the fact that I'm going to wear it. It's going to be part of me in a different form. When Paul says to accept one another, he's saying embrace them, welcome them. They are you and you are they, and we're all one together in Christ Jesus. Right? So accept one another is more than tolerance. It's an embracing it's a welcoming. You're seeing a peer in Christ Jesus and not somebody more or less. We're family. Best friends don't have to agree on everything, do they? Do spouses have to agree on everything? If you're married, you know that is not possible. But when you're best friends, all those sorts of differences can be overlooked. It's the same thing in the church. We're the best of friends. Where's the unity that we agree on? Jesus Christ and the word of truth. And when the Bible's not clear about it and there are differences of how people approach certain issues in their lives, then we let those be and we embrace each other. We accept one another. We're family. And we will not let anything divide us. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I'm so glad that Christ accepts me. He embraces me. I'm his, I'm his sibling, you could say, because we're all family in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters together. He's my God. He's my Lord. He's the master. I'm the disciple. I'm the servant. But we're family adopted by God. And that is something that, again, the Bible insists on that we don't let anything divide us. Don't give Satan a foothold over things that don't matter. Now, what about faith? You might think at first that faith is maybe somebody's got more faith in Jesus and the weak have less faith and they're struggling in their faith and they're not sure about their salvation. That's actually not to understand it. What Paul means by faith in this context is it's what their faith allows them to do. They might have just, well, they probably do, they have just as much faith in Jesus Christ and the assurance of their salvation as anybody else. However, in that faith, their conscience can sometimes, or traditions can sometimes stop them from exercising all the freedoms that God allows. And that's okay for them, accountable to God. Verse 2, for example, gives us an illustration. It has to do with food. How many of you have ever had somebody come over to your house and eat all the meat and potatoes and not one vegetable on the plate? I've got relatives that just don't eat veggies, and I don't know how they're still alive, but they, they don't eat veggies. And then I've got certain other parties that I, I, they call them, I call them they eat bird seed, 
they, they eat all the veggies and stuff, and I wonder how they live so long, too, without the meat in their lives, right? But there's a diversity of view and tastes and stuff like that. And Paul is saying, look, a disputable matter is whether you want to be a vegetarian or not. That's up to you. Do you want to be a vegetarian? Has God put that on your heart? Then be a vegetarian. If you don't want to be a vegetarian, you're free to eat whatever you want. But let's look at where maybe some of the differences arose. And you can look at verse 2 again if you'd like to follow along with me. But maybe the vegetarians in that group, especially if they're Jewish, may have looked at the first dietary direction that God gave them. You know where that is? It's in Genesis 1.29. Then God said to Adam and Eve, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. The first dietary instructions were vegetarian, right? And maybe that's why they said, well, there's the first one. It's got to be the best one. So maybe they clung to this as a sense of, we're right, you're wrong. You need to be a vegetarian. Perhaps that was dividing them. Or... Because pagans at the time, the non-Christian community, and many of the Gentile Christians prior to believing in Jesus, would go to the local temples. They were like the fast food McDonald's of the day. You'd bring a sacrifice to the temple, you'd offer your sacrifice to the gods, and the priests would cook it, and you'd have a barbecue. Honey, let's go out to eat. Great. Zeus or Mercury? Which is it tonight? You know what I mean? And you'd go there and you'd have a nice hot meal and you'd go home satisfied. But the meat had been offered to an idol. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, all those idols were out. Some could, with a good conscience, go to McDonald's, so to speak, and have a nice barbecue. And they didn't worry about the idols. To them, it was like, yeah, whatever. I want my meat cooked. They're doing it. I'm happy. Others, though, because it was so much part of their lives, if they, they just couldn't do it. And so they're thinking, I can't eat meat at all because I'm afraid it's been sacrificed to an idol in it. My conscience just upsets me so much, I can't go back to that. So they went to the vegetarian side of the house. Meat eaters may have considered the second diet given to us in Scripture. Genesis 9.3, God said, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So the weak might say vegetarianism is, vegetarianism is the way to go. The strong might say, but yet, in 9.3 it says, eat what you want. And there was perhaps some differences there. The Jewish community may have even had limitations. When I was in uh, Jerusalem the last time, uh, Tim and Jack and I and Jenny, we wanted to go and get some burgers. I don't know who else came with us, but we went, we were in the Jewish quarter. Let's get a cheeseburger, we said. Oh, man, I would love an American cheeseburger. So we go over to the, the restaurant in the Jewish quarter now, and I said, I looked at their menu, and I asked, could you put cheese on that? No way. You cannot get a cheeseburger anywhere. In fact, they don't mix dairy and meat. They'd even have to use different utensils. I didn't know. I didn't remember that. That's all kosher stuff. Now, to a Gentile Christian who has no qualms with kosher or not, I would like a cheeseburger, please. And their stalwart, weak answer was, no, you cannot have a cheeseburger here. 
And that was a, a kind of a kosher clash, you could say. And I had no understanding at the time, and I was rather put out by it. I thought, what's wrong with these people? They don't have any cheese around here. I came to realize later on it was definitely a matter of um, honoring God in their own way without Jesus yet, and they didn't feel free to deviate from the kosher diet of the Old Testament. And I appreciate that now. No meat or dairy unless, it, unless from cud-chewing animals with cloven hooves. That would include cows, goats, deer, and sheep, for example. They couldn't mix, though, meat and dairy together. That was wrong. They had to use separate cookware, even. Gentile Christians, on the other hand, well, they didn't grow up that way, and like me, they would go there and say, cheeseburger, please, and they had no qualms about it. Kind of reminds me of, do you ever see the, the original movie, Big Fat Greek Wedding? Do you remember that she brings her fiancé to meet her Greek family? And as they're coming together, mama's making dinner and everything, and she says to her mom, Mom, he doesn't eat meat. And she's like, what? He doesn't eat meat? She's just blown away. She says, okay, we'll have lamb. <laughs> it was unconscionable that they couldn't eat meat. They said, no way. So I'll come out, I'll lamb, you know. Maybe we can get away with that. There's just no room in her brain. Well, that sometimes is how we act. Our conscience, our traditions can get in the way, and we think, how could it not be this way? Or we might imagine, how could you possibly do that? I would never do that. And Paul says, if it's not clear in Scripture, stop. You're accountable individually to God. You're not accountable to each other on these matters. And that is one of the biggest principles that can so easily get lost. So when disputable differences arise, what should we do? I think check your attitude. Check my attitude. What, do, what, am, I, what am I thinking? How am I behaving? How am I responding? How am I feeling? Is this the way God would want me to respond? Are you treating them with contempt? Do you roll your eyes? You know, that's the number one body language in America for a contemptuous thought. You roll your eyes. Now, everybody's going to watch somebody roll their eyes at some point and go, you have contempt for me. I heard the pastor say so. Trust me. Now, you might be rolling your eye right now. We do roll our eyes, but sometimes it's with a minimal sense of, oh, man. You know, like, okay, whatever. Don't always think they hate your guts and they're totally on the opposite side of the spectrum. It's just a human nature, unconscious thing. We roll our eyes. Now you'll all be watching each other like hawks, right? But we do that. But we just need to be careful that we don't have contempt for somebody whose views are different when the Bible, again, is not clear, okay? Are you excluding them from your inner circle? You just don't welcome them. You're not accepting. You don't see them as really family, valued family members in the body of Christ. Are you feeling spiritually superior to them before God? Do you accept them knowing that they're accountable to God and not you? If you feel there's something in their life that could be better, pray about it and ask God to reveal that to them. But otherwise, if it's a matter of freedom in Jesus, let them, let them be free. In disputable matters, remember, God has accepted them. In Christ, so we do too. Second of all, that Paul says all Christians are God's are Christ's servants. All Christians are Christ's servants. Who are you to judge? Someone else's servant, he writes. To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, there's real living, saving faith there. They are truly in Christ. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, individually. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, to which I might add a hearty hear, hear. Right? For he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. We're, we're God's people. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, this unity, this belonging, this family, this unity in Christ Jesus, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord the center of the church, the Lord, of both the dead and the living. It's just elaborating here, isn't he, on what he's just taught in his principles. And it's probably more directed towards the weaker Christians whose conscience or traditions are stopping them from the freedoms that we have in Scripture given to us by God. But it's really, I think, instructive for all of us. We can't say it's for somebody we know. All of us can learn from it. So, when we get hung up with those hiccups and hang-ups on issues that the Bible does not give us clarity on and the principles don't lead us to a conclusion, then Paul says, be careful you're not asking yourself or behaving in two ways. He says this, first of all, who do you think you are? Are you the master? Are you the Lord? Are you Christ? Are you God? Okay, no, I'm not. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I've got the word that you've given us. I understand that. Okay, so I know my place. Another question he says is, are, are you their master, or is Jesus Christ their Lord? In other words, will I try and mold you into my image, or will I pray that all of us will continue to be molded by Christ in the image of Christ? It's, a, it's an easy thing to want everybody else to be like us, isn't it? How many people have married somebody and said, well, I'm going to work on them? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to train them up. How many, I've, okay, I'm going to be a little straight up here. How many people said, I'll never want to get married again after all these years because I can't afford to train somebody up again? <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Well, we hear that too at Martin House. Um, there's a lot of training involved. And you do rub off on each other, you know, and the good things can rub off on each other and you, you grow and you learn together. But uh, honestly, you don't want to get married to change somebody into the person you'd like to marry. You marry them for who they are, right? You should. And it's the same thing in a congregation. People come to church with all kinds of backgrounds, traditions, values, and expectations, tastes, matters of conscience. And the Bible says where there's clarity, there's unity. And that's what we want to keep our eyes on. And where there's differences of opinion, then let those breathe. Don't make rules for people to be like you, and don't look down your nose at anybody who doesn't agree with you in those matters. That's one of the key principles of Christian life together. 
So does a, here's a, just a great question I ran across. Does a Christian rise and fall in favor with Jesus because you think so or because it is so? Does a Christian rise and fall in favor with Jesus because you think so or because it is so? In other words, I can't make those judgments on those non-essential, disputable matters. That's you and God. So, strong or weak, Jesus is the Lord of the conscience, and we need to let him be. Now, to illustrate, Paul gives us an example of sacred days. Sacred days. Some may be considered one day more sacred than the other. Others may consider every day sacred. He might be referring to Old Testament ceremonial rituals, uh, Jewish cultural things that were coming out of the Old Testament, celebrations, could have been even Gentile ones, don't know. But there is a division there amongst them about sacred days and celebrations. Kind of reminds me in our own world that the Seventh-day Adventists will insist on worshiping on Saturdays, and we're worshiping on Sundays, and if anybody you know, tries to get into conflict over what day we're worshiping, it's really a waste of time because that's a disputable matter and a matter of conscience. Are they wrong to worship on a Saturday? No. Are we wrong to worship on a Sundays? No. It's not a matter to get all hung up over and all wound up about, but it can happen, and we don't want to get caught up in all that. Whatever you decide, Paul wants us to know we're serving the Lord above all else. All else. Whatever you think or decide to do, do it out of sincere love and regard for God. That's so important. Don't try and please me. Don't try and please your relatives. Don't try and please anybody else. You're living in the pleasure of God. And we should be as free as God allows us to be in our faith. 2 Corinthians 5.15, those who live should no longer live for themselves. Do you agree? Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Third, and last, because it's a little shorter sermon today, let God be the judge. Let God be your judge. Let God be their judge. Let God decide matters of conscience and values and traditions that are, again, disputable, that we don't have absolute clarity on. Look at verses 10 to 12. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we all will stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's wrap-up here gives a couple of thoughts that we could ponder. I've, I came up with a list of things that could divide a body of Christ. Why do I judge my brother and sister when they act differently than I do? Well, let's look at some things. How about dancing? Some of you have come up through uh, different denominations or different churches, different families and traditions, and dancing, no. Others said dancing, fine. But it's a matter of conscience. What if I want to dance like David danced before the Lord, but I'm not getting down to my underwear, I'm not doing that. David did some way out stuff, and his wife got very upset with him for probably some quasi-justifiable reasons, but David wasn't going to let his enthusiasm for God get in the way, and on he went. We won't go back to the Old Testament and reiterate that story, but there's freedoms in Jesus that other people's conscience will stop them. They can't do it, and it's God's Holy Spirit in them 
that's saying, for whatever reason, don't do it. The worst thing we can do is say, oh, come on, dance. Grab their arm, drag them out on the dance floor. Get going, come on. And their conscience is tearing them up. You're ruining their spiritual growth in Christ. There's a roadblock, and we'll look into that more deeply next week. There's a roadblock that you're creating in their maturity in Jesus. They're, they're wound up in the moment and not wound up in Jesus. And that's a derailing of what God is doing in their life. We don't want to do that. How about drinking? Now, that's a big one. Is it okay to have a beer? Is it okay to have a glass of wine? Is it okay to cook with wine? Because you don't really cook all the alcohol out of it, usually, by the way, unless you're really careful and astute about it. What about the whole topic? Is it okay or not okay? Different people have very strong points of view on this. So did the Roman culture. It's a matter of conscience. Did they have wine in the scriptures? What was Jesus' first miracle? He turned water into grape juice. Didn't you know that? No, he turned it into wine because they were running out of wine. And when they tasted the wine, do you know what they said about the wine? You saved the best stuff for last. That's an amazing vintage. Wow, never tasted wine as good as that. Now, we're not saying, let's go out there and drink. But we are saying, if the Holy Spirit puts a check on you, and let's say there's alcoholism in your family. My, my dear friend Galen, who passed away, and we went to a service in Helena, he was a teetotaler because alcoholism ran rampant in his family. So do I look down my nose at Galen and say, oh, come on, Galen, have a beer, have a glass of wine, come on. Would that be the right thing to do? That's absolutely the wrong thing to do. So what we do is we give up our freedoms for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ when we need to, right? But there is freedom there. We just don't want to get drunk. That is clearly stated in Scripture. But alcohol itself is not prohibited. So what you think about that is a matter between you and God, and you're accountable to God for it. Don't let anybody coerce you otherwise. That's you and God. How about card games? When we were in Germany, they wouldn't play cards. We had decks of cards. You want to play cards? No, we don't do that. Why? It's just cards. But there was something in the culture, in the, the Liebenzell mission culture, that they just couldn't play cards. We're not gambling or anything, and there's all that issue too, but what does the Bible say about it? Again, it's a matter of conscience. We didn't insist they play go fish. You know what I mean? They didn't want to play cards? Good. That's okay. We might play cards at home, but not with the Germans we were with. It wasn't going to happen, and it would be wrong to do that. Worship on Saturdays or Sundays. Shopping or working on Sundays. The Sabbath rest, right? When I was a nurse, I worked every other weekend, and then I was in the reserve, so I worked three weekends out of four, and now I've been a pastor for over 30 years, and somehow I just can't seem to get away from Sundays. So, you know, somebody's got to work. It, it's inevitable. So, what about the Sabbath rest? Does it have to be on a Sunday? Does it have to be on a Saturday? I think you have to decide in your own conscience, don't you? How about the form of church government? Independent churches. I, I go to an independent church. Well, yeah, but is Jesus there? I mean, isn't that the point of church? 
I go to a denominational church. Yeah, but is Jesus there? Isn't that the point? We get all wound up about government and independence or interdependence, and that's ridiculous. It's just a form of government. Does, does the Bible tell us what form of government we should have? No, we only know we have elders and deacons and pastors. That we do know. Treasurer. Judas didn't work out so well, but you know they're there. You know what I mean? So we can glean what we can, but a lot of it is very much a matter of conscience and tradition and what we think would work best, but people can get so wound up about things that aren't super critical in our lives together. How about Bible translations? Mm, yeah, I heard the buzz. What do you read, Pastor? The 1984 NIV. Why? I don't know. I've done it, done it for so long. I don't want to memorize another one. Maybe that's part of my problem. I, got, I finally got free from the King James Version I grew up with. Have you ever tried memorizing and then rememorizing? The King James lingers, and it's you're kind of stuck in the corners of your brain, and you're trying to remember how to say it in a more updated translation. And C.S. Lewis reminds us that every Bible we read is a translation. It's a commentary on what the Greek says. The Greek, you have to get into the Greek. Talk to Jack. He took Greek in seminary. He loved it. I took Greek in seminary and barely survived it. But we're all made in different ways. I'm, I'm still growing in it. It's wonderful. But the Bibles that we have, the NIVs, the ESVs, the, the RSVs, which we used to jokingly call the right standard version, um, all those sorts of humorous things. You know why the Good News Bible was translated? To teach English in China. Very simple English. I've got a book, a Bible in my office by Wycliffe Bible translators called the Pigeon Bible. It's Pigeon. It's a mix of languages that the people in Hawaii speak, and they call Jesus the little sheep guy. All kinds of different phrases, but it's the Word of God. Do you get it? So I don't get hung up on whether you want King James, New King James, NIV 84, or NIV more modern updated one. I think we just want to do the best we can. And why do I say they're commentaries? Because they're making translation decisions. And I don't have time to go into all the exacting details, but they don't just sit around and go, I don't know, I kind of like that better. How do you feel about it? They're not that casual. They look at manuscripts. They look at usages. They looked at the language. They looked at how it was used in the Greek culture and how it was used in the later Greek culture and how certain words in the Bible weren't found in Greek culture. So what did they mean in the context? It's deep. It's rich. It's long. It's hard. They are scholars. They pour their hearts into it. And any translation with that kind of legitimacy behind it is well worth reading. Even the message by Eugene Peterson, which is pretty free-flowing, if you want to get another glimpse of things through the lens of Eugene Peterson, have a look at the message. I don't recommend it as a great Bible study per se, but it's a great adjunct to make you think. These are all gifts that God has given us, and I hope and pray that, like at our Bible study on Thursday morning, we've got a couple of translations that are read, and every now and then we'll go back and say, what did your Bible say? Just the other day we were reading and going around the table and one of them read from the King James Version of the Bible, which is great, but apparently she gave birth to the child through her bowels. I'm, I'm sorry, I was a nursing student and did my OBGYN and labor and delivery and all that and it just seems like that's an odd way to say it. But again, it's cultural, 
it, you know what it is. He came from his mother's womb, so you got all that knowledge in there. But it was interesting that the King James Version would mention bowels instead of what we might interpret it otherwise. And it was fun, though, to read those various translations because together you learn so much. And how many of us know that every time we read it, we get something more every time? I'm in two Bible studies on Luke at the same time, and one's way ahead of the other one. And every time I go to one of them, it's like, where are we at? <laughs> the Tuesday night group is farther ahead in Luke. The Saturday group is behind in Luke on that, on that chapter and verse. And I love it because the group on Saturdays, I've already been through it on Tuesdays, but I don't remember everything that we did on Tuesday night to dig in. And Saturday rolls around, and I'm like, you know, I think I used to know that answer, but I don't know it now. And around we go, and we dig, and we learn, and I come out of that every time going, I've learned so much today. How about you? So, again, is it essential that one translation dominate and rule the roost? I think we're blessed to have a multiple. Set them side by side. Have a look at multiples. You'll be blessed if you do. I think that's one of the ones that, that dominates quite a bit. I say, just live and let live. You got a favorite one? Roll with it. And then what do we wear on Sunday mornings? What do we wear on Sunday mornings? I am so grateful that the congregation really has never been hung up on that here. I'm so glad you're here. God looks at the inside, not the outside. And we don't want to be a distraction, right? We want to be focused on God. But these are things that can sometimes get in the way. I know one church in our area insists that men wear shirt, uh, shirt and tie and a jacket, and women must wear dresses. And you can, may go there once or twice, but after they realize you're staying, they'll insist that you change your clothes. And I'm thinking more spiritually, and that's a gray zone. If they want to do that, that's good. That's fine. I, I shouldn't, I'm not looking down my nose, but that's what they do. But for me, my conscience says I want to dress my spirit in Christ, first and foremost. I've talked to some people who say, I can't come to church because I don't have any nice clothes to wear. Literally, I heard that. It killed me. It's like, no, come. It's okay. Come, don't let the clothes you wear drive you off. Jesus looks at what's in the heart. Jesus wants worshipers in spirit and in truth. That is very clear. The rest of it is commentary in terms of clothing. We want to look nice. We want to not misrepresent, but we don't need to overdo it or catalog or coerce or corral or control. It's your conscience and your tradition and your accountability to God that this is what you do. This is what we all want to keep our eyes on. So it's God's place to judge disputable areas for each and every one of us. Ultimately, though, we are accountable to God. The quote that's in this section that he uses is from Isaiah 45, 23. And if you look at the whole context, I'm going to read a little bit wider than the quote that Paul used. This is what Paul's referring to. Turn to me and be saved, God says, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I've sworn my mouth is uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow by me every tongue will swear, they will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. 
So what are we going to do? Um, there's a couple of instances where churches have been divided. Have you ever heard of a, of a church split? Was it over disputable or indisputable matters? A lot of it's disputable stuff. Charles Colson wrote in a book once that they, the church was trying to figure out what color roofing to put on their roof. They had two decisions. One was a reddish and one was a greenish. And the congregation decided that they would sit on the side that they were in favor of. So all the reddish crowd sat over there and all the greenish crowd sat over there. And they were so upset about the color that would be chosen that they got into a fight. And the police had to come and break up the church. And of course it goes to court and of course it makes the newspapers. And there's another instance, oh, and by the way, they had bumper stickers on their cars that said, we worship better at in the name of their church. Well, that didn't work out so well for them. Then there was another instance where I was reading about a church that was all hung up on a Christmas tree. Some believed it had pagan roots, so why would we take a pagan-rooted object like a Christmas tree and put it in the sanctuary? So certain members of the church decided that they're going to haul that Christmas tree right out of there. So the Christmas tree went out the door. Then the other group in church dragged it back in. Then the other group dragged it back. It went to court. Yeah, it literally went to the court, and it made it in the newspaper. Praise the Lord. Now, come on. These are the craziest things that can grip people. Now, here's the thing to remember. I think the bottom line, the most basic rule we can remember is all of us may have, and we probably all do have, weak things in our lives, things that our conscience will stop us from doing or our traditions will stop us from doing. We probably all have some of that. And they're going to vary. They're going to be different. We do not want to make our feelings about these the lay of the land for everybody else. We're accountable to God for those very things. Whether your conscience says to stop, then you should stop. If your conscience sets you free, then be free. But for the sake of others who might be hurt by your freedom, in your maturity, limit your freedoms. You know what I mean? And make sure that we accept one another always. And one last thought. These are not matters of clarity in Scripture that we're talking about. These are matters where the Scriptures are not clear, and so we need to let liberty and conscience and accountability to God rule. So in Germany, did we play card with the Germ cards with the Germans? No. They were the weak in that instance. Their conscience, their traditions wouldn't let them play cards. My tradition growing up in my home, we played cards all the time, and I just see them as cards. But I didn't play cards with them when I found out they couldn't do it. I didn't say, show me in the Bible where I can't play cards. Now, come on, let's play cards. I didn't do that. That would be sinful because I'm violating their relationship with God. God can tell somebody no when God can tell somebody else yes in matters of conscience. And we need to accept that and embrace it and love each other as Christ does. We belong to the Lord.
So in every case, let the Holy Spirit determine your matters. Each one should decide in their own mind, in their own mind, what they're willing and not willing to do. And let God be the judge. I think here, at our church, <laughs> we've done really well. I think there's two things that I always kind of shudder with. Color anything. Color anything. The carpet's red. Do you know why the carpet's red? Because the previous carpet was red. And I still remember when uh, one of our elders stood before the church and we were going to replace the carpet some years ago. And he said, and we don't want to make that mistake again. <laughs> and I remember people in the congregation going, Ooh. and I thought, I feel sorry for the poor souls that have to make that decision to choose the carpets and get it all here. I think we did go with something different in the entryway there. Here, it's similar to what it was. Sometimes not doing anything different is the easiest road to go. But sooner or later, it'll need to be replaced, and I hope not to be on any committee that has to make that decision. We don't want to make that mistake again, right? Feelings. And then here's another one I just can't stand to get involved in. Music. What dial is on your radio? What do you listen to? Classical, hymns. Praise music. Is it on the radio at all? You know what I mean? And then you come to church, and, and the old joke is there's something at church for everybody not to love. In other words, traditions and your own personal tastes and your own personal matters of conscience in those disputable, non-essential areas are true for all of us. All of us. And we just need to accept one another and be accountable to God for the choices we make to embrace the things that maybe we wouldn't do or appreciate, but to be ready to say, I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to keep first things first. Where the Bible's very clear, I am equally clear. And when it's a matter of individual accountability to God for the decisions we make, then let that be you and God. And let's breathe in love together. We've got a big mission to fulfill. And in unity, the Holy Spirit is at work. And I'm grateful, thankful. <sighs> Next week, part two. The week after that, part three. The week after that, part... He's going to take us deeper and more richer that we can grow together in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for a loving congregation. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's work. Lord, really to me, personally, the evidence of the Holy Spirit here in this body is the ability to embrace each other and welcome one another and love each other. And that's always been here. Even before we came, I saw the signs. I see the heart. And Lord God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit's at work in me and all of us here this morning. Lord, forgive us when we've rolled our eyes at things that you would not roll your eyes to. When we have a feeling of superiority or a sense that everybody should think the way we do about non-essential, disputable things, Lord, forgive us. We ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit continue to work in each and every heart here today, that we would truly accept one another, that we are truly accountable to God individually, Help us, Lord God, to accept the differences. And Lord, may our unity be centered on clarity 
and the truth of your word. Lord, help us to set aside personal opinions in terms of trying to coerce or to force. But Lord God, let the Holy Spirit breathe in each and every heart here today. There are differences, but Lord God, there is no difference in the gospel among us. There is no difference in the clarity of your word for us. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you, God, that we are one in Christ Jesus with a mission. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the body of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen.
before we finish in prayer. Uh, for some of you, you may wonder, is this a disputable matter or a clear topic right out of Scripture? And you're wondering, you can always ask me and I'll help you dig and look and, and we'll seek and find together. That's an adventure uh, that we have in Christ as a body of Christ. So I'm here, I'm available for you. Uh, whether you're a first-time visitor or you're in another country, uh, email works. And so do phone calls and so do personal visits. I'm here for you, all right? We'll all grow. Let's join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all of God's wonderful people can say amen. God bless you. Come on down to the fellowship hall and enjoy each other's company. We'd love to see you there. There's goodies and things to drink down there. God bless you.